Well, welcome. Good evening. Welcome to all you that are watching online. We're excited to be able to gather again on a almost summer night, um, be able to enjoy God's Word in, in a study. we got all that going on. Well, let me pray for our time as we just uh, prepare our hearts for hearing from God. God, I, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Uh, most importantly, your Son that gives us hope in a future. I thank you that you've given us new life and that we're being transformed day by day into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you help us to set aside the cares and the concerns of the day and the week. And Lord, even uh, those that have, have suffered loss over this last week, or in the last few weeks, they're grieving. Lord, I would pray that you would be their encouragement. We celebrate the new births and the new lives and all the things that you're doing. Most importantly, may your name be praised above all. We thank you for our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand stand with us as we pray, as we sing. We already prayed, now we're going to sing. When we lift up our hands. Sorry about that. We stand and lift up our hands. For the joy of the Lord is our strength.
comes up to give our message this evening. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you, team. You would open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our study in Ephesians and and our journey. We're picking up uh, in a transition as Paul has been writing about the mystery of the Gentiles coming to faith. For the Jews, they had no concept in that a Gentile could ever be redeemed uh, or, or be saved. They really never looked at them in such a way. And Paul has been explaining in the first three chapters of Ephesians how it was God's intention all along that these Gentiles would come to faith. And it was God's plan that was going to be revealed that anyone that would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved regardless of, of race or, or background or heritage and all of these things. And Paul is now going to move from a place of, of exaltation and explanation to exhortation. In other words, he's going to tell us what to do. And for a lot of people, they, they're like, yeah, you know, the theology and the doctrine is really good, but God, what do you want me to do? And so in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we get into really this this application of how we should live in light of knowing this mystery, knowing this great salvation that we're there. And he's going to appeal to both parties, both the Jews and the Gentiles, to live in unity, to be able to get along. Now, we've got to preface this. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity is, is when it comes to the Bible, it's talking about this unity that's founded in the base doctrine that Jesus Christ has saved us all. But there's going to be a distinction in practices between the, the Jews and the Gentiles based on their heritage and their background. But they can find that common place in Christ. And so it's important for us to understand that because so many times we don't like people that don't look like us. We don't, we don't like people that are different from us. And they may worship a little bit different. They may, they may look a little bit different. And when you start traveling and going into the mission field, you start seeing some of that. And, and we need to be able to celebrate the distinctions of cultures and people. But then we can also celebrate faith in Christ in that sense, in that sense of unity. And so Paul is going to make this appeal to both parties, both Jew and Gentile, to live together in unity based on the fact of why they're united. And he's going to explain why they're united, the common ground within that. He's going to exhort them to, to express unity through spiritual giftedness, to be able to, to use these spiritual gifts to bring people together. We don't have too much of a difficulty offending people, do we? We can do that pretty easy. But to try to get together and to love people together is, is a little bit harder with that. But that comes with maturity. And so there is a sense of unity that Paul is going to teach. And he's going to call the believers to a sense of unity and spiritual maturity. 
to be able to be in, in that place of oneness. And then Paul's going to also explain on how to live that new life of faith towards one another using these gifts. So we're going to jump right into chapter 4. And it's broken up into two sections, verses 1 through 16. Really is, is the call of Paul to preserve the unity in the Spirit within that. And it's a message that is true for the church of Ephesus. And if you remember, Paul spent two years there. And he was teaching daily in the hall of Tyrrhenius. And he was, he was, these Gentiles were coming to faith. And then it was the Judaizers that were coming in behind him saying, they don't have all the gospel, they don't have all the truth. This Paul, you don't need to listen to him. If you really want to be a good Christian, you've got to be a Jew like us. And Paul's like, no. So now he's addressing these, these Gentile Christians there and, he, and encouraging them to preserve this, this unity of the Spirit. You look at verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he starts out and he tells them first to walk worthy of your calling. If you name the name of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, shouldn't you live like one? You should live. And, and what is a Christian? Well, they were first called Christians in Antioch because they were like little Christ. They, they were Christ-like. That's what Christian means. When someone looks at you, they should see Jesus. They should see the actions, the heart behind him within this. And so Paul reiterates this. Now, the other thing that Paul starts out is he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord. Keep in mind, where was Paul writing this from? Prison, Rome, house arrest. He was chained to a Roman guard. So he's reminding them, I am a prisoner of the Lord, and I'm imploring you walk worthy of the manner. This, this idea with this is, is to be able to be this encouraging person to implore you to, to speak this truth, to conduct yourselves worthy of a manner that's there to call, follow Christ in our lifestyle. One of the things that I think is super important if you saw the movie Jesus Revolution was you saw a distinction in how the people of the, of the Jesus movement were living contrary to culture. They were living different. Now, a lot of people call them these crazy hippies. But what was really happening was they were living counter the hippie culture and the drug culture that was going on, and they were living with love and forgiveness and really embedding into the Word of God, which was even counter church culture. And so within that, we need to live countercultural. There should be such a distinction. There, there was a time when you would walk into a place, and wherever the place was, it really didn't matter. You could walk into the place and you say, you're a Christian, aren't you? You could tell by their demeanor. You could tell by their conversation. It's much harder today, isn't it, to be able to do that, to really find that distinction. Because we have a lot of chameleon Christians. What they do is they blend the environment that they're. Why? Because over persecution and time, they found it much easier to blend than to stand out. And if you're a Christian and you stand out today, you're bound to be persecuted. And it's much harder. We talk with the kids that are on campuses today. It's hard for kids to be Christians on campuses today. Because it's not that they're standing out. It is they are going to be targeted and persecuted. got an email from one of the high schools 
um, and I was blessed by the email this last week that said, would you be interested in taking back the baccalaureate for the high school? And I'm like, for 2024, I'm like, absolutely yes, count me in, we are in, for sure. Because the baccalaureate has been so secularized when a baccalaureate is a religious service. It used to be that in the Christian colleges, which was what colleges were originally set up to do, they were to be seminaries, that the baccalaureate was the, the, the affording of the bachelor degree and they were to give a sermon at the baccalaureate within that. So within this, we look at this and, and so we've got to live according to the culture. Well, with, within this, we, we've got to understand that Christians in Paul's day in Ephesus would be persecuted. Why? Ephesus was primarily an idolatrous city. We've been to Ephesus. We've seen it. Where you walk through and there's, there's all of these different places and you go to the library and you've got the pillars where they had all the different shrines and idols and the, the Artemis and Diana and just all the different things that were going on. And being a, a, a Christian there was really countercultural within that. And, and to the extent it would even cause a riot eventually. So Paul's perspective as Christians there was to be able to live Christ-like. To walk worthy of the name of Christ within that. I often say, is there enough Jesus in you being demonstrated for someone to be saved? Is there enough of Jesus in your life, in your language, in your lifestyle? It should be. And Paul's perspective for them was that they needed to walk in unity, both the Jews and the Gentiles together, for a stronger witness. What's a bad witness? Two Christians fighting. Doctrinal differences. Arguments within the faith. And so he wanted the unity in Christ. And the unity in Christ, from Paul's perspective, was unity at all costs to self. That's important. Unity at all costs to self. In other words, I want to be unified with you even if it costs me what I feel I'm entitled to or, or my perspective. Not unity at the cost of doctrine, but unity at the cost of personal preferences within them. And, I, and so I think it's in, important. Paul wanted unity and it, it cost him his freedom. He was, he was in prison as a result of preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Why? Because the Jews hated him. They hated the concept, so they threw him in jail because of it. And so the word worthy, I think, is interesting because the word is axios. And it means literally corresponding to what should be expected. Proper or corresponding to what is proper. So we think about that. What does a proper Christian really look like? Do they wear a suit and tie on Sunday? Do they wear a dress? Is a proper Christian one who, who you know, is all prim and proper and all of that? Or is a proper Christian that is one that looks and loves like Jesus? In whatever way, shape, and form. And this idea of calling. It's the calling that, that is not only the believer's salvation, but it's the calling to unity in Christ. Jesus died to bring the Jew and Gentile and all people together. It is worthy of that calling. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Jesus brought two opposing parties together. Holy God, sinful man. And he brought this together in unity. And so we've got to understand that the, the Christian life represents that idea of bringing that person that is on the outside, the least, the lost, the marginalized, and to bring them into relationship with Jesus. Regardless of, of who they are, the whole goal is to bring them into unity with Christ within that and in that, in that relationship. And so, you know, the question I think about is, how does the Jesus in you align with how you live and engage with the world around you? Do you view people with a critical eye, judgmental eye? Do you look at them and say, well, you know, you poor pitiful sinner, I must come rescue you? Or do you look at them with the heart of Christ and saying, how can I love you? How can I, how can I share truth with you? How can I walk alongside you with, with the difficulty that you're in? Because as a member of the body of Christ, you're filled with the Spirit of God. And it's that same Spirit that, that moved Jesus to look at the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and to be kind to her. The man with leprosy and to give him a touch. To be able to go to the marginalized, the tax collector, the sinners, the zealots, and to bring them all in. We have a responsibility in, in having a Christ-like attitude towards the world. And realize they're in the world and they look like the world because they're unregenerated. They don't know God. They're walking in darkness within that. The problem that was going on here in Ephesus was, is there was this challenge within the faith structure between the Jews and the Gentiles, and there was a fight, and they didn't even look at each other correctly. And how they responded to each other, because as much as the, the Jews hated the Gentiles, the Gentiles struggled with the Jews. And so within that, we've got to understand that, that the way to deal with this is how Paul says he gives this with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. This is one of those verses that I struggle with. I struggle with being in that place of humility and gentleness and patience and showing tolerance for one another in love. Because it really means that I have to die to self. You think about this word humility. The word humility literally has this concept of without arrogance. Literally, it's the humble person that, that does not say, hey, look at me, I'm the most humble person in the room. <laughs> now, humility is not look at me. The, the, the idea of humility is seeing somebody with value, more value than perhaps you even you see yourself. You're not walking into the room sucking the air out of the room, but you're looking at, at helping others. Why would this be important to Paul in writing to the church of Ephesus? Because in the Greek culture, humility was not looked positively upon. They didn't look that. If you, in the Greek culture, if you were humble, you were humble because you were a slave. You needed to be humble because you were worthless. You needed to take that low position. They They... 
honored prideful people. They honored big, extravagant things. You needed to be the big show. And if you were a humble person, well, you just shouldn't even be around. And so, with that, Paul was saying no, because you look at Jesus. Did Jesus have, did Jesus have every entitlement to be proud? He's God. He can be proud if he wants. But yet, he was born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, the son of a carpenter, lived in Nazareth. And if you remember, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Humble within this. Gentleness. This is a, a, one of those fancy Greek words that I really like. Proutus. Proutus has this idea of gentleness and it means with the opposite of harshness. It's the idea of, of being soft and not raising your voice with, within people. It's this idea of, of just having this, this gentle spirit. Have you ever met somebody that is like the loudest person in the room? Or the most reactionary within that? Gentleness is the idea of being soft, not raising the voice, not being rude, not being harsh. Gentleness, proutus, literally means just this power under control. You know, and, and when we look at people, you can look at somebody that's gentle because they have that just really calming demeanor about them to be in that place. Jesus would say in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What are we to learn? I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest in your soul. How do you get there? You get there because you know who you are in Christ. You get there because you don't have to be the big show. You get there because you're okay with who you are. And you're not trying to be something that you're not towards other people to dominate other people. And then this third one, patience, literally means long-tempered. It's the idea of being emotionally, emotionally calm in the face of provocation. The idea, this, this patience is, if somebody's poking you in the chest, you're just taking it. I'm good. And being calm. And literally, the way the Greek translates it, it's being calm in the face of provocation or misfortune without complaining or irritated. Now, that's the one that I have a hard time with. I can hold it in for so long. But I'm probably going to complain or I'm probably going to be irritated. I can be patient for so long and then when my patience runs out, then it's gone. God's got a lot of work to do in me yet. We look at this and, and why does Jesus want, or why does Paul want the church to be like that? Because that's how you can forbear with other people in love. Forbear means to put up with, to tolerate other people. You have to work internally to be able to love externally. Literally to bear up one another. This effort, it's, it's interesting because in, in the, trans, the way it translates, it's literally to bear up or to be co-chained or chained together in peace. 
I want you to picture something in your mind right now. Picture the person that irritates you the most. Get, it, get that person in your mind. Irritates you the most. Now I want you to imagine this person that irritates you to the most. And now you are chained to them. Bound to them with no escape. Would you want that? Nope. But this idea of bearing up with one another in love literally says this is how we're to treat each other. We're to love one another to that extent to where we can tolerate that. To be able to be in that place. It means to lovingly tolerate one another even when you have differences. To be in that place. That's a hard place. How do you have unity? You'll have unity when you can get to that place. When you can love that person even though they drive you nuts. Because you're not loving in your own stead. You're loving in Christ. Paul's going to keep unpacking this. How do I get there? How do I lovingly tolerate when I have a difference with somebody? He goes on with the elements of the unity, verses 4 through 6. How do we get there? We've got to understand the theology behind it. There is one body, one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. A lot of ones in there. The idea of this one is the unity of the body. It's only achieved through the Spirit of God. You will not be able to lovingly tolerate other people on your own accord. You can put up for a, a, a little bit of time. But if the Spirit of God is doing that work in your heart, you will find a depth of unity and love that is beyond measure. But you've got to understand, from Paul's perspective as he brings this out, it's only achieved through the Spirit of God and it's based on a bond of peace. So what does that mean? You were an enemy of God because of your sin. Jesus came and He brought peace. How did He bring peace? Because He died on the cross for your sin, paid the penalty for your sin, and you are no longer an enemy, but you are a friend, and you are placed in Christ in that peace. So your vertical relationship with God is at peace. You're at peace with God. God is not angry with you. God is at peace with you. Based on that peace, you can have peace with one another. To be in that place. It provides the peace to be able to have peace with one another because it's a reconciliation. So you've been reconciled with God. Based on that, that reconciliation, you can be reconciled one to another. Are you going to be best friends? Are you going to go out fishing and, and all of that? No, maybe not. But in Christ, spiritually, yes, you'll be one within that. When you come to an understanding of the unity in the Godhead, it's interesting because Paul will lay out seven different elements of unity within this. Paul is what's called a Trinitarian. Trinitarian, three in one. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he lays them all out in, in this package. He urges the believers 
both Ephesians and the Jews, the Gentiles and the Jews, to live at peace based on the foundation of the, the Godhead, the unity in the Godhead. Is God one? Please say yes. Otherwise, we have another Bible study to do. God is one, but yet He is three. And they, they harmonize together as one in unity, in a love relationship, even though they have three distinct persons. We can't explain it. Don't try to figure it out. But they work perfectly together, three in one, in unity. You are placed in Christ in the center of that unity. And so is the person that irritates you, if they're a believer. So you both share the same foundation within that. The one God, the Father, one Lord, and one Spirit. Notice how Paul brings these contrasts. There's one body, one Spirit. The Holy Spirit that dwells in you is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in me. That is a foundational fact of unity. So if you have a problem with another believer, it is you and your flesh that has a problem with them and their flesh. But the same Spirit resides in both of you. So where does the reconciliation need to take place? In your human view, in the fleshly view. Because the Spirit's already unified. One body, one Spirit within that. And understanding that the universal church, big C, whether you're Baptist or Methodist or, or whatever, non-denominationalist, whatever, it, the same Holy Spirit that dwells in those believers in one denomination is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in the others as evangelicals within this because of the one God that's in this. One body, different parts, as Paul even talks about in Corinthians. Undivided, because God's not divided. One, and then he goes on. One common hope. Spiritual confidence. The same, the same believer that is a Gentile has the same spiritual confidence that the Jewish believer has. The same salvation. Do they not? They have one common salvation that unifies them within this. And it brings them together. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us, plural, to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the believers down the street and the believers in this room or the believers in Africa all have the same salvation. One common salvation, one same hope, guaranteed that when we die, we're in the presence with the Lord. So we can, we can be unified with that. As he goes on, one Lord, who is Jesus Christ, the head of the church. It's a common hope based on the Lord, based on Jesus. Question, is Jesus divided? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's the common ground that we can always come to. Can you imagine what it would be like if the church, Big C, started in the common ground, in the common place, and had a conversation based on that common ground, and be unified in that? It would be amazing within that, because we have one common Lord who is the head of the church. That's Jesus. He's sovereign over all. 
The problem is, in our flesh, we want to be in charge, don't we? I want to be the head. I can tell you this. Being a pastor, I don't want to be the head. I want to be the toe. I want to be down, hidden underneath the shoe, and just kind of just tell me where, head, tell me where I need to go. It's too, too much. But a lot of people, they want to be in charge. There's only one head, and his name is Jesus. He's in charge of the whole body. Goes on, and one, Paul says, one faith, one saving faith in Jesus as Lord. And see how he's progressing? One God, one Savior, one faith. Then he says, one baptism. Faith and baptism, it's interesting because they go together, especially in the culture in Paul's day. Because there is, and even for us as a church, we practice this, there is a testimony of faith of what I believe in, in addition to the act of baptism. We ask those that are going to be baptized to declare their faith and then be baptized. So Paul says there is one faith and one baptism, which is the declaration of that faith. We know uh, Peter in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 238, note what he says to them, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says repent. It was going to be a public repentance, a public declaration and then go be baptized within that. And he was calling them to that public declaration. In Galatians 3.27, it says, For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. If Christ cannot be divided, and if you're baptized into Christ, then that means that everyone that is baptized into Christ is in one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Savior, one God. Indivisible. Because God is not divided. But the Gentiles on one hand and the Jews on the other hand were having a problem because they were having different perspectives of what true faith is. I would encourage you as you meet with other Christians, focus on the essentials. Don't focus on the non-essentials. Focus on the essentials. Celebrate the essentials. Celebrate Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen again. Make those the, the, the places where you can come together within this. Because we serve, as Paul ends with this, one God and Father of all. It's interesting because the word all is used four different times. If you look at it, one God and one Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That means that you can't escape from God. He's, he's of all who believe. He's over, God, over all, which means he's sovereign. He's through all, which means he's going to accomplish his will through all of the believers. And he's in all, which means he dwells in all believers at the same time by, via the Holy Spirit. Wrap your head around that one. Can I be divided? No. No. Well, I can if I want to be in my flesh. I can if I want to be a stinker and argumentative and divisive and make it about me. Newsflash, it's not about you. It's about Christ in you who is the hope of glory. 
within them. So, Paul writes to them and he says, look it. Based on the foundation that you are unified in Christ, one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, you are one. How should you act towards one another? Well, then he gets into this. Verses 7 through 16. You're to exercise these gifts to preserve the body of Christ. Notice he says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul's parenthetical statement. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure and the full stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fit and held together by every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. So, as he goes into this, he says this very distinctively. He says, God gives gifts. Question. When you get a spiritual gift, is it for you or for somebody else? For somebody else. God gives you spiritual gifts for the other. The gifts are not given to you for your own personal gain. The gifts are given for the other. Within this. God gives believers these gifts for the other, as Paul would say, to do this. To build up the body of Christ. Gifts are given to you so that you are a conduit of grace to build up other people. Problem with the Corinthian church, as we've been studying on our men's study, is that they got all puffed up in their gifts. And they made it about themselves. And they weren't building each other up. They were devouring each other. And they became prideful in their gifts. God gives you the gift to build up others to maintain unity. To be one part of the body that blesses the other. This is not the only list of gifts. In fact, there's four different lists or references to gifts. And if you're taking notes, you're going to find them here. Um, in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, you're also going to see 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 28 to 30. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And also in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. It's mentioned here, and it's not all-inclusive. 
there are gifts that are not even mentioned here that are going to be expressed. These are just samplings. Because we've got to understand what the, what the purpose of the gift is. We've got to understand that, that all of this is there. And also we've got to understand that the gift is a grace gift. The word is charis. And if you remember, grace is, is getting something you, you don't deserve. So God gives you, by His grace, a gift that is to be used for other people. To what? It's a measured gift to what is needed for the other person. Question. Is salvation a grace gift? Yes, it is a grace gift. Salvation is a grace gift. You are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So we look at this. Did we need salvation? Yes, God gave the grace gift of salvation to everyone who believes within that. And so we're saved by this grace gift. And every grace gift that is given is given to the benefit of others. To be unified. And again, not uniformity and nor are grace gifts uniformity. Some people will get different gifts than others. Some people will get more of a gift than others. Does that make you any less of a Christian? No. It's measured out by the Holy Spirit for the need of the others that you will be encountering with. That you'll, to be able to build them up. To encourage them. So understand, the grace gift that you give has been measured out to you by God as a gift for you to be given out to somebody else as needed. To, to be able to exercise this gift. And you're exercising this grace gift, get this, on behalf of Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You follow? Christ in you, the hope of glory. You exercise this grace gift, whatever it is, to build somebody up, as Paul is going to do this. And again, a variety of different gifts, but one giver, one Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-6. through 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. One God. That means that the gifts that you give will be spread out, and it's a diversity of gifts, but one God. So it comes from a unified source, from the Godhead, via the Holy Spirit. Paul then quotes Psalm 68, 18, says this. He says, you've ascended on high, you've led captive your captives, and you have received gifts among men, and even among the rebellious, also that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, Paul quotes this, this psalm, but he changes a couple of things in the quotation. If you study it clearly in psalms, he changes the pronoun and he changes the direction of the gift. He changes the pronoun from you to he, and the direction of the gift is, is changed from receiving gifts among men to giving gifts to men. But he's using the same principle. Why? Because it's really all about the gift, the source of the gift being God. 
You don't own the gift. You are a conduit. God will give you what you need when you need it for the sake of unity and a variation of that gift at different times. Now, when we take a look at this, we also can see that that he's quoting this based on the giving of the gifts in context. I've heard this passage preached a number of different ways within this, and sometimes people get hung up with it. But the idea is the way that the gifts are given. So it says, He ascended on high, led captive, a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. And people get all hung up on this. The idea, though, you've got to understand, verse 8 talks about a victorious situation. That He led captive the captives. They were in victory. This is somebody who won a battle that says, I won the battle, now I'm going to give the, the bounty out. Well, what was the battle that Jesus won? Jesus won the battle over sin, sorrow, and death. And then what was the bounty he would give? It would be the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he would give upon ascension. Within that. In fact, Paul gives this parenthetical, or in parentheses, he wants to explain it in verses 9 and 10. And it's really Paul's own commentary on his own words. But before the gifts could be given, Jesus would have to ascend to heaven within that. But before he could ascend, he would have to descend. Now, I can tell you this, and I spent quite a bit of time studying this. And there's a lot of commentators and a lot of theologians that really get hung up on what does it mean to ascend or descend. Paul knew it would be a problem. Because he asked the question, he says, now the expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had to descend into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended his, himself, who ascended far above all the heavens that he might give the gifts. And people go, okay, what did he do? What is ascend? What is descend? What does it all mean? Well, there's, again, a lot of good Bible scholars that debate and disagree on that. There's four possible interpretations. I'm going to give you all four of them, and I'll tell you what I think. One interpretation is that Jesus descended into Hades, or the abode of the dead. That before he ascended, he first descended into hell, into the abode of the dead, and took captive captives, or, or would preach to those that were there, showing that he was victorious over death. In other words, he shows up in Hades, the abode of the dead. He says, here I am, I win. Now let's go. Is there a biblical basis for that? Yes. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22 says this, For Christ also died for the sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that, in a clause, that he might bring us to God. So he died for the purpose of bringing us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, now we have chronological order, but made alive in the spirit, in also in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So these would be Old Testament saints. During the construction of the ark, in which a few, there was eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to the baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt of the flesh, but the appeal to God in the good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the God, his ascension, and having gone into heaven after the angels and authorities and powers have been 
subjective. So that is what some commentators would hold to as being of you. So he descended into Hades and then ascended into heaven and then gifts were given. The second view that Jesus, this speaks of Jesus' descending from heaven to earth, the incarnation. We know that based off of John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So some will say this is the descending from heaven to earth in the incarnation, and then he would go back to heaven and then give gifts to men. A third view is that Jesus descended into, and they take the lower parts of the earth to mean that he went into a grave. That he first died and descended into a grave, rose again, and then would ascend and give gifts to men. Fourth view. They hold to the the day of Pentecost, that Jesus descended and then ascended and then sent the Holy Spirit to give the gifts to men on, on Pentecost. If I didn't hurt your head enough, and you're going, I don't know what view. I want to give to you something that's called, in, in Greek, it's called the genitive of apposition, or opposite. Ascended and descended are opposites. That's all it means. Basically, it describes that he first, prior to the ascent, he must first descend into the lower parts. Now, what do we read in context? In context, there had to be a descending, then ascending, then a gift giving. Did I break it down simple enough for you? There had to be a descending, and then an ascending, and then a gift giving. So what is my position? Don't be dogmatic about it. I wrote out what I think it is. Jesus had to descend from heaven to earth in the incarnation, die and be buried in the grave, descend and declare his victory over sin, death, and the grave, then ascend to heaven that he would send the Holy Spirit to empower the church with the spiritual gifts. I think it's a combination of all four. I think it's very simply the account. I think it's the whole simple account. Am I going to be dogmatic about did he preach to who and what and when or where? Nope. You know why? Because I got my gift. And I don't have to work it out. I just know what he said. That he left heaven, came to earth, became incarnate, died on the cross, died a human physical death, was buried in the grave, descended and declared victory, ascended into heaven, And sent the Holy Spirit and gives gifts within that. And what are these gifts? These ones that Paul mentions here are the gifts for leadership. This is only one of many, many lists. He gave some apostles. That literally means ambassadors that are sent as God representatives. Prophets. Those that profess the word of God or direct revelation of God. Evangelists. It's only used three times, and it refers to someone who is a gifted proclaimer of Scripture. And then the fourth one is pastor-teacher. One person, dual gifts. Pastor-teacher. They're, they're two different words, but they're classified into one, one category of leadership. 
This gift describes in two words the pastor who's the spiritual shepherd and the teacher, one who communicates and explains the word of God. Different than the prophet. So the apostle. Is the office of the apostle still present today? Not in the biblical sense, in the sense of the twelve apostles. Are there still people that are sent as ambassadors of God on mission? Yes. But not in the authoritative role that the twelve apostles had. Are there still prophets today? Yes. Those people that would go out and profess the word of God. But is it the office of the prophet that declares new truth about God? No. Why? Because we have the written word. Is there an office of evangelist today? Yes. Missionaries will have that gift of evangelism. Is the office of pastor-teacher relevant today? I hope so, otherwise I'd be out of a job. Pastors are pastor-teachers. That's their role. That's their function. Can they operate um, from a sense of uh, a prophet? Yes, I can speak forth the Word of God. Can I go as an ambassador to God? Yeah, when I leave here and I go on a mission trip, yes, I could be an evangelist, I could go be an ambassador, I could do that. You all could do it. It's not a one and done. It's as needed within that. So you say, okay, well, Carrie, what is the purpose of these gifts? The purpose of the gifts is for practical service. It's not for personal gratification. The gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ, to make disciples. Question. Can anybody in this room have the, have the, the gift of pastor-teacher? Yes. You absolutely can. Can anybody in this room have a gift of evangelism? Yes. Can you go as an apostle to uh, uh, Africa or someplace? Yes. You can. can. Can you speak the truth of God's Word in a, in a very dark place that needs the authority of God's Word? Yes, you can. It is not just meant for the professional. It is meant for the whole body to build up the whole body. To strengthen the whole body. To build people up for acts of service how long? Until the body's unified. When is that going to happen? You ever think about when that's going to happen? When is the body of Christ going to be completely 100% unified? When we're all there. You know what that means? Job security. If you're here, you're still working. Within this, you're to prepare people for these acts of service. You're to build people up. You're to be discipling people. How long until the whole church reaches these four standards? Unity of faith. Full knowledge of the Son of God. Spiritual maturity. And the stature of fullness in Christ. There are four categories. You can check the box and you're done. I can't. I don't know anybody that can. Because if you're still here, you're a work in progress. There should be somebody speaking into your life. And you should be speaking into somebody else's life. You say, well, what do I have to say? Talk to God. What do they need? And if somebody's discipling you, talk to them and say, this is what I need. And that way you can receive and give out. 
within this, he gives a, a danger though. He, there's a warning within this. Verse 14, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be what? Children, tossed here and though by waves, carried around by every wind of doctrine, trickery of men, and craftiness. He warns people, there's a danger. If you're not being built up in the unity of body of Christ, you're going to act like a child and be immature. Do we see that in the church today? <laughs> we, there is the danger of spiritual instability. Do we see that in the church today? There's the danger of spiritual gullibility. Do we see that in the church today? Absolutely. That means that the body of Christ is not doing what the body of Christ needs to do. There's still work to be done. Will, are we there yet? No. Are we closer? Hopefully. Some are, some aren't. But we need to keep going. Why? Because there's a bunch of people acting like little kids that are unstable and they're gullible and they're believing lies. How are we to do it? In love. Always speak truth in love. In love. Always speak truth in love. Why? Because when you're exercising that gift to build the other person up, it's like you're taking this person and you're loving on them to build them up in Christ. You're looking for the best for them. You're not talking down to them, beating them up, terrorizing them. You want to build them up and encourage them. Until when? Until the whole body is unified with Jesus as being the head. So how do we do that? It's called lifestyle. Paul finishes this chapter in verses 17 to 32 with lifestyle, which we call the Christian walk or our behavior. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become calloused, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you didn't learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been brought to Him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God that is created in the righteousness and the holiness of truth. Paul has one really long sentence in verses 7 to 17 to 24 within this. And he basically says, walk in the unity. Again, not uniformity, but in unity. But to do that, you have to abandon your old way of life. You have to say no to the old self. And again, you've got to understand from the church of Ephesus, that means that they are going to have to abandon the whole Ephesian culture that they're living in. The idolatry, the sensuality, the, the, the worshiping with the temple prostitutes and all the things that were going on. They have to turn away from these things. The old life is a self-centered, narcissistic life. It's about me. The new life is about you. It's about the other. The old life is not unifying, but it's self-centered. The new life brings unity. Notice he says the old life was being led by the futility of the mind. 
I got to thinking about this. Paul mentions this. The feudal mind. And he talks about it in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. I know we don't have feudal-minded people in our culture today. But listen to the description. You might know a person or two. It says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Do we have that today? But they became futile in their speculations and foolish in heart and darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in form of corruptible man of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Do we have people abandoning the holy God to worship idols? Sure. They're not made out of stone. They might have four wheels that go down the road. They might float. They might have pictures of presidents on them that you deposit in a bank or... It might be a house or all these other kind of idolatrous things. It might be self. But it's this ungodly life that's meaningless. And the goal of the ungodly life is to get more of meaningless. You think about that. I want more of what? Meaningless. Well, when are you going to have enough? I don't know. You know, you think about all these rich people. And, and I, I might get it wrong, but I think it was Howard Hughes. Years and years and years ago, when they asked him, so when is enough money enough money? And he said, if I remember right, he said the next million. You, you think about all these guys that have so much money. When is enough money enough money? It's never going to be enough. Paul's exhortation to the believer is no longer walk according to that life. The life that's thinking, that's darkened, that's ignorant of God. That keeps separate from God. Peter would write to his readers this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. As obedience, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves. Also in your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Is holiness a choice? Yes. But for holiness to be active, you have to turn away from the unholy and embrace the holy. It's a willful decision in how you conduct your life. You say no to the unholy and say yes to the holy. And the end result is of the unholy is you're separated from God. And you are no longer separated from God. You don't live that way. How did they live? Callous. They, they lost the capacity to feel shame. He says, the ungodly live a callous life. They have no capacity to feel shame. Have you watched any TV lately? People are doing things that you would... Uh, how do you do that? How do you, how do you dress that way or act that way or be that way? Is there no shame? And the answer is, no. Because they're callous. They've abandoned themselves to sensuality. It literally means a behavior completely lacking in moral restraint. Is that happening today? Absolutely. They've become greedy for the practice of every kind of impurity. Is that happening today? Paul addresses this kind of ungodliness later in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, 24 to 32. Listen to this, and if this doesn't make your skin crawl. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are all gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. We have that today for sure. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God or a moral law, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but also give heartily approval to those who practice them. Can we say the world is there in 2023? We're there. But Paul was writing to the church in Rome that was going on the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. It was the same condition there that it is here. And Paul is writing to the believers and saying, that is the ungodly world. Identify it and stay out of it. Don't go back to it because that's who you were, but it's not who you are now. Then who am I now? You have this newness of life in this. He says to them in verse 20, but you didn't learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard of him, you have been taught and you have. Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in, new, in Christ, he is a new what? Creature. What's passed away? Old things. And what's become new? All new things have come. You're new. You're not who you used to be within that. You've been taught Christ anew. Do not fall back to the old. We can't go back. Is it a choice to be holy? Yes. yes. But you have to make that choice every day. Paul says, how are you taught? How are you growing? And you need to understand that this is this condition. The world is trying to press you into its mold, is it not? And our kids, even more so. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Do not be conformed or pressed in to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what the will of God is that's good and acceptable and perfect. Don't let the world push you into its mold. Resist it. And so for the Ephesians, they needed to push back and they needed to behave differently. The last verses, 25 to 32. Therefore, based on all of this, how can the Gentile believers live with the Jewish believers? Based on one God, one Savior, one faith, one baptism, in Christ, Spirit dwelling in them, they are to turn away from the old and all of them live a new way. How? Verse 25. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, 
for we are all members of one together. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who is in need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only the word as good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to the hearer. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Paul gives a list. How should I live towards one another? Very simple. Take off lies. Speak truth. Just like you're taking off the old man, put on the new man. Take off the lies. Put on truth. Take off anger. By what? Don't let the anger soak overnight. Don't give the devil an opportunity to nurture anger. Paul quotes Psalm 4.4. Don't let sin be in this place. He says, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Take off stealing. Work for your own provision. Work for your own provision so you have excess so you can bless other people. Take off rotten words. Speak words of enrichment and grace. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit who seals you and keeps you, which means stop rebelling against Him. Take off bitterness. Take off wrath. Take off anger and clamor and slander and malice. Put on, instead, kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And forgive the same way that God's forgiven you. If you ever wonder, does that person need forgiveness? Ask yourself the question, didn't I need forgiveness? And shouldn't I forgive that same way? In closing, I'll read Colossians and then we'll close with worship. In Colossians 2.13, it says this, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, being God, made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all of your sins. Can we live in unity with other believers? Yes. yes, we can. Let's pray. God, I thank you for tonight. And I thank you that we could come and we can, we can be challenged on how we live. Every single person in this room and watching online, we got work to do. We got work to do in discipling others. We got work to do within our own heart to be discipled, to be transformed. Lord, help us to put off the old man, put on the new creation in everything we say, do, and think. And love others the same way that you love us. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand. I'm going to close with a hymn. And we're going to do all four verses.
God, you are holy and you are mighty. You are just and you are true. You are gracious and kind. You give to us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness and salvation and hope. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we have been brought into the deepest, deepest well of love that could ever exist, the love of God. And we are one, united in Christ. May we live that way. To those that are in the body of Christ, may we love those that are outside of the body into the kingdom of God and share with them truth about who you are, Lord Jesus. We thank you. As we go out this day, may we honor you in everything that we say and do. And most importantly, God, may we make you smile. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.